This is God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And then Romans 7, reading verses 7 through 13, the word of our God. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, or that could be translated all manner of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly Sinful. This is the word of our God. Just say right now, it's a lot of confusing things in that passage, and hopefully I'll, I'll get to the heart of it without expositing every thought. But tonight we, we think about the, the Ten Commandments, particularly that last commandment, you shall not covet. And uh, I was struck just a, a little over a week ago watching... Christmas movies in our house, and we watch some old stuff, so maybe only a couple of you will be familiar with this, but once, out of Hollywood, there was this Christmas movie where there was, there was a song sung, a little crooning going on, when I'm worried and can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep, and I fall asleep, I fall asleep counting my blessings. When my bankroll is getting small, I think of when I had none at all, and I fall asleep counting my blessings. Whenever I hear that, I, um, I, I'm rather convicted, for one thing, because there was a time when uh, I had no insurance and worked a job that was much more dangerous to my health, and uh, I had no money in the bank, and it was actually this time of year begging my church for help with the the cost of propane for my house. So uh, it's so easy to forget how bad we could have it, maybe even have had it. But as uh, Bing Crosby sings that song, I also reflect that Hollywood would never put that in a movie today, a movie about Christmas today. At, At best, we hear things like, oh, well, I thought Christmas was about getting, but now I know it's about giving, which isn't a bad thing to learn. That's a really good thing to learn, but is that what Christmas is about? 
And does it really produce contentment or are we just redirecting our, our feelings of wanting something to feeling good? We want to feel good about ourselves because we've given to someone else. It's very different from Bing Crosby singing, I, I count my blessings and fall asleep. Uh, being there is, is being much closer, I think, to the Apostle Paul when Paul reflects I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. How many of you hear Paul say that? About once a month, I make you say that in church. Uh, how often when you say that those words, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, how often do you think, no, I haven't? Um, that, that's great for you, Paul but not me. It, it hasn't happened. We need to remember that Paul himself didn't find contentment easy to learn. For one thing, he uses that word learn. I had to learn this. He wasn't born content. And beyond that, he also speaks frequently about that opposite of contentment, covetousness. He speaks about how it was a struggle for him. Several places he talks about this. Our text here in Romans 7 is one of these places where he shows that uh, however much he thought he was on top of everything else, he got to the 10th commandment and found he wasn't content. He was covetous. So he had to learn, and that should give us encouragement as we have to learn as well. In his struggle with covetousness, Paul uh, actually learned as he struggled with covetousness that he'd not kept any of the law. He, he learned just how bad his goodness really was, all because of this one commandment. It's a key commandment. It's a key commandment. I reflected this last week that uh, we have really integrated it into most of the sermons on the Ten Commandments over the past six months, or I have tried to. As we have sought to apply not just the outward form of the thing, but also the inward issue, as Christ does in the Sermon on the Mount, we have been applying the Tenth Commandment with each of the other commandments along the way. Whether I drew explicit attention to that, or not. And so rather than trying to be long-winded tonight, I'm not going to say I'm going to be short tonight, but rather than try uh, to cover all the things tonight, I'm going to rely on the fact that we've we've covered a lot of it already. I want to think about a couple of things though. I, I want to try to simply define covetousness. I want to consider covetousness's place among uh, in the in the law itself here in Romans 7 and then consider how each of the other 10 commandments is tied to the 10th and in that sense it, it's it's kind of a summary of what we've covered in this in this series so i want to try to simply define covetousness what is covetousness merriam webster dictionary it says uh, covetousness is to feel an inordinate Inordinate, big word, meaning uh, immoderate. That's not a word we use either, is it? Excessive, 
We still use excessive, right? Too much. So to feel too much desire for what belongs to someone else. Too much desire. I think that's a good emphasis, that inordinate, that too much desire. Because desires aren't necessarily wrong. But too much desire is. Too much of anything is, by definition, wrong or bad or or not good for us. So envious desire, maybe we could say, for what someone else has that we don't have. Or if we want to put more of a theological spin on it, it's envying what God has given someone else that they haven't given you. And so we want what someone else has. We want it. Uh, We might think covetousness isn't that hard because the examples given in the text of Exodus aren't all necessarily relevant to us. Um, The wife part, and if you extrapolate husband into that mix, might hit most of us. But um, most of us don't struggle with wanting our neighbor's donkey. I never have. Maybe my daughter wants someone else's donkey. My wife might wish she had a donkey, but I I don't struggle with that. Maybe most of you probably don't struggle with wanting your neighbor's donkey. And I very much hope none of us desires to have our neighbor's servant. Because none of you should have a servant. Not... I don't think any of you has a servant. And so we we could say, well, that's easy to check off the list. But when we step back and say, these are just examples of what coveting can look like and catch that last line in the commandment. Do not, do not excessively, enviously desire what someone else has been given, anything that has been given to them, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Remember, Christ says, Who's your neighbor? It's everyone else, not just the person who lives next door. So as we think about covetousness, it's desiring what God has given to anyone else that he has not given to you. Another short definition you could use, it comes from Colossians 3, 5 and 6, and Ephesians 5, 5, where Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. I'll try to come back to that again uh, before the end tonight. But covetousness is therefore a a very big deal. It's an important thing to consider. Desiring too much what someone else has. So you might have a need and desire a solution to that need. You might might want uh, heat for your house and you're struggling to make ends meet. It's not wrong to desire to have that heat in your house. If, if, though, you desire ill for someone else and you want what they have that God has not given you, that's where coveting comes in. It's a very very subtle thing in the heart, I think. Uh, Again, uh, I, I think we can act in extremes. We could say, well, coveting is just, you know... Thinking, well, Donald Trump, Trump, I'm sorry, Donald Trump has all this money, and I want all of his money. And most of us would say, no, I've I've never really felt that way. But any time we're being discontent with not having more, where we look at someone else, 
and think they have the life of ease and I don't. And I should. It's owed to me. And uh, that, that's when we get into it. So discontentment, I think, is a really important gauge for covetousness that is subtle. I'm discontent a lot. But uh, I, I don't think I want everything the richest person in the world has very often. So if I'm defining it in terms of that, I never covet. But if I'm defining it in terms of contentment versus discontentment and, and so forth, it, it's a very dangerous thing indeed. Uh, now, I, I want to think for a moment about covetousness in, in connection with the law. And this is what Paul's getting at here. I'll just confess because I was trying to spend more time with my family this week. Uh, so I'm just going to borrow from a commentary here. Because uh, it was so well written. So this is what F.F. F. Bruce has to say. Uh, the, the idea of how does covetousness fit in with the law as a whole. And the, the answer is that the covetousness fits in with the law in the sense that it, the rest of the law, it's the inner reality, the inner motive, the inner root of much of what manifests itself outwardly in the other commandments. And so hear what F.F. Bruce has to say here about Romans chapter 7. Paul was not greatly tempted to worship a graven image. Paul was not greatly tempted to commit murder. Paul was not greatly tempted to commit adultery. Paul was not greatly tempted to commit theft. The commandment which caused him the trouble was the tenth which dealt with the inner attitude rather than with an overt action or word. You shall not covet proved a stumbling block. Covetousness is itself a sin. It is indeed a basic element of many forms of sin. As Paul puts it elsewhere, covetousness is idolatry. It may be illicit desire, a wrong desire, or it may be a desire for something lawful in itself. But desire of such a self-regarding intensity that it usurps the place which God alone ought to occupy in the human soul. I think that's really good. It gets to what Paul's saying here. He says a lot of confusing sentences in what we read in Romans 7, but at the heart of it he's saying, before I get to the 10th commandment, I think I'm doing pretty good. That there was a point in Paul's life when he thought if, you know, if Christ had asked him, go and keep the law, he, he might have been the one to say, I have kept all of this from my youth. I've never worshipped at a pagan temple. I've never worshipped a pagan god. I haven't uh, gone and taken the Lord's name in vain. I'm strict with the Sabbath day. I honor my parents. I haven't murdered, committed adultery, stolen, or borne false witness. But Paul says, then then I read that sign, you shall not covet. And uh, I realized I'd broken all of it, is in essence what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 7. All of a sudden I knew I was guilty and the death sentence was on me. That's Paul's thought, which means the 10th commandment 
its place within the rest is to do exactly what Christ is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. The 10th commandment says, take all of these other nine and examine your thoughts and your heart and see how it is on the inside. Because all the other nine, you can, you can pull off looking like you are whitewashed on the outside and you get to the 10th and you might discover that you are whitewashed. You're just a whitewashed tomb or a, a, a jar that looks good on the outside. And um, I, I had a Sunday school teacher in middle school brought this old jar into the classroom that had a lid and it looked really nice. He was an artist. I don't know if he'd painted something. It was a beautiful jar. And then he would take the lid off and make us smell it. And uh, he had taken some things from his dog and um, some other things and mixed them all together inside the jar and then covered it. And so you look at this jar sitting... He was making this point about covetousness. That You look at this jar from the outside. Wow, this is a really pretty jar. What are you going to put in it? What do you got in it? Potpourri? What, what do you have? Some, some delicious cookie? Maybe it was a cookie jar. That might have... I don't even remember. It was a long time ago now. But then he would open it up. Anyone? You want, you want some? Go ahead and reach inside. And of course, none of us wanted it. The room was quite wretched after a minute, and so he had to shut it again. But that's what Christ says about our hearts. And that's what covetousness... You shall not covet, the Tenth Commandment says about the other nine commandments. Well, you thought you were doing great, didn't you? You stink when we look at the inside. And that's what Paul found about himself. He, he really stank. The stink, the stink of, of death, uh, as he speaks of it here in Romans chapter 7. Death, because he is rotten and decaying on the inside, and it's all because he's looking at that last commandment, you shall not covet. Well, the one other thing about its placement in the, in the Ten Commandments in connection with the other pieces of the law that I think is important to note is that it is last. It forms a bookend, as it were. So in one sense, uh, and, and God does this frequently in Scripture, he bookends lists of things. And on the front end of the Ten Commandments, we have, you shall have no other gods before me, which is a declaration of God's absolute right to tell us how to live amongst other things. Which means in one sense, you can't break any commandment without breaking the first commandment because you're setting yourself above God. So at the front of the Ten Commandments, he has this overarching commandment. I'm in charge. But at the end of the commandments, he also has an overarching one, looking at it from this this other angle, the same idea that the heart of contentment, uh, discontentment with what God has given us is behind the breaking of all commandments. And so um, it's it's important for us to meditate on covetousness. Okay, well, that's all very general, but... It's a challenge that you go back and examine your heart this week. And to help us with that, as well as to wrap up this series, 
I want to then spend our time a little bit thinking about how each commandment is tied in to the 10th commandment. How is each commandment? And this is going to be just on the surface. So in your own heart, you're going to have to dig down deeper. How is your covetousness tied into each of these commandments? But let's try to at least get to the point where where you can examine yourself in that. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. When I don't keep that commandment, what is going on inside my heart? A, A number of things we might say, but one thing we could say is, I am... I am coveting God's authority. It's not my authority. Uh, to borrow from Heidelberg, my life is not my own, and this world is not mine. It's God's. But I want to call the shots. I want to decide what is right and wrong. I want to determine what I worship, if anything, or how people uh, respond to my actions, I want to be sovereign. And that's a covetousness for God's authority. All sin falls under that category, doesn't it? Now, we we often might think of that as being a sin of pride. I think Lewis might talk about that very effectively. I'm not disagreeing with Lewis here, by the way. Uh, That pride is behind most sin. The pride of me thinking I should have sovereign authority. The problem is my pride and my covetous heart are desiring something that aren't mine. I want what is God's. Like Satan, before, before uh, the fall of man, Satan in heaven desired the throne of Christ. It wasn't his. And so that led to all other all other sins that he has committed since then. And think of Adam and Eve in the garden then. Adam and Eve want, they want to be like God. They covet godness. And so they sin. So you shall not have, you shall have no other gods before me, desiring, coveting God's authority. Uh, Second, you shall not make any image, any likeness of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Here we're talking not of uh, worshiping uh, a false god, but we're talking about worshiping the true God in a way that creates an image which he has not authorized. He says, don't make images an image of me. So if we want to make an image of God, I, I was struggling with how to phrase the covetousness on this one a bit, not because it's not right there, but because I, th- I thought of a dozen ways we could frame this. Here are the two that I, I liked the most. The second commandment, when we break it, we are coveting God's dignity. God has said, this is who I am. You can't recreate it. You're not able to. I'm above you in this. There's nothing you can make that won't dishonor me. And we say, oh no, I could. We're we're coveting God's dignity. We're taking his dignity from him in 
this image, even if we're very seriously thinking that we're doing it reverently, he has told us not to do it. Uh, Just a reminder that Christ is the image of God, but Christ never said, now you can make images of God. And whenever we try to do these sidesteps on things like this, we're still coveting what God has not uh, permitted us for. So, so coveting God's dignity, but maybe the better way to phrase it then is that in the second commandment, we're coveting God's rule over the terms of the relationship. God has said, no images of me. And we say, no, we want the relationship and we want the, we want the image too. Um, not, not all pastors' wives feel the same way about things like illustrations, sermon illustrations, right? Um, I was just reading H.B. Charles Jr. was saying his wife, when they got married, said, you can use anything from our life together about me in a sermon, but don't embarrass me. There's the, there's the condition of the relationship, right? Don't embarrass me. And uh, he must be a very good man because he says she's never had to bring it up again. Uh, that's not the condition in my, my relationship. I don't think I had to be asked. I think I said before marriage that I wasn't going to use things at least with a great deal of caution, right? But let's say a spouse says, don't tell stories about. Uh, Don't go off to men's breakfast and tell what we got in a fight over the other day. And we go and we tell that. There's There's an attack on the terms of the relationship that have been put before us or upon the dignity of the person we're supposed to love. And that's what God's doing in the second commandment. He's saying, here are the terms and conditions, and you, you attack my, repu- my dignity if, if you break this terms. So we're coveting the authority over the rules of the relationship. Um, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, here then, when we take God's name in vain, speak flippantly about him. And make him the subject of mockery in whatever way. We are coveting God's honor. We want to say we have the authority to to do whatever we want with his honor, with his reputation. Uh, Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, then we're coveting God's time when we break the fourth commandment. God has said... Six days you have to labor and do all of your work, but the seventh is mine. And so when on the Lord's day we we say, no, it's going to be mine. We're coveting God's time. He's given us six sevenths of our time to pursue what we need to pursue. And he's saying, I get this seventh amount. So breaking it is coveting God's time. We can throw in there as well, though, um, part of the command is work six days. And that's not all at a job site necessarily. It might be mowing your lawn or vacuuming your house or working on a relationship that needs work or whatever these things might be. God has given us 
that space and he's commanded us to make use of that space and not be lazy with it. So we're also uh, coveting God's time when we, for example, lazily ignore our responsibilities the other six days. Uh, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Uh, this, this, one, this one, we turn the corner, right? We turn the corner from uh, coveting something that is God's to coveting something that is our neighbor's. And here we're back to the issue of authority. If the first commandment is coveting God's authority, we want to be sovereign in our own lives, then the fifth commandment is so- uh, coveting our neighbor's sovereignty, our neighbor's authority, what God has given them. So if God has placed me underneath the authority of another, not honoring and reverencing that and obeying it right according to the right laws would be a... a coveting of the authority. I want to be the authority instead. Um, that, that one's hard. We spent two weeks on that. We'll, we'll move on from there. Uh, sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, what coveting has to do with murder? Like most cop shows that say motive. I think motive is the issue here. Why kill this other person? Why hate them or attack them? It comes down to a covetousness, an envy, an envy for the neighbors, fill in the blank. Talents, possessions, reputation, life, you know, quality of life. Now, I know there are exceptions, aren't there? They're, they're just lunatics out there. And you wouldn't have a, a rational way of connecting the dots to covetousness in their heart. But, but for the most part, when we look at our own hearts and examine the hate we have for others, the way that we express hatred, which Christ says is the inward reality of that outward action of murder, when we examine that, it comes down to envying something most of the time. And then the seventh and eighth commandments are the two that Christ explicitly lists in his examples in the the 10th commandment. You shall not commit adultery. There were, of course, it's kind of on the nose, isn't it? We're we're coveting the other person's wife, or we're coveting the other person's body, maybe, or something like that. Fill in the blank. You shall not steal, number eight. And there we're coveting the other person's possessions. So those are the two most obvious, and that's probably why God uses those as the examples in the 10th commandment. And then the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And th- this is the equivalent to taking God's name in vain. If that is coveting God's reputation and honor, then you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor is coveting your neighbor's reputation and honor and wanting to do what what you want with it. Uh, We all, I think, need to examine our hearts in each of these areas and dig down deep to see the root of discontent and covetousness in ourselves. Uh, I hope we see the importance of 
of the whole law hanging on you shall not covet, as Paul indicates here in Romans 7. The law is good, and therefore it's also good for us, like Bing Crosby, to go to bed counting our blessings. Uh, But simply counting our blessings and then falling asleep uh, falls short of what we need. Because eventually there will come the day when you're laying in bed, counting your blessings, and you will not count a blessing. Or you will misjudge what really was a blessing and you wanted something else, and then it starts falling apart. I'm not critiquing that song here. I'm saying it's not far enough. And it wasn't intended to be an exhaustive discussion of discontentment and covetousness anyway. But what do we need that goes beyond going to sleep counting our blessings? What can we learn from Paul about contentment in whatever state we are in? What sets Paul apart from that song is where he goes with it. Here, here are these verses from Philippians four eleven through 13. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased, how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you see how that ends? Paul isn't with that last phrase, which if we separate it out from the other things he's saying, we say, oh, I can, I can do anything. There are no limits on what I can do. I just have to believe in myself. Or no, believe in Christ, believe in myself, and call it believing in Christ. That's how we often use that sentence, isn't it? And that's not what Paul is talking about. It's the end to his thought about how to be content. He's learned in everything to be content. How? Because it's Christ who strengthens him to be content. And so he's looking away from himself and his covetous heart. He's looking to Christ for contentment. And so that's, brothers and sisters, what we need. If we would be content, we must go to bed not simply counting our blessings, but then having counted, we need to get on our knees next to our beds and pray about covetousness and contentment. Now, there are a couple of things we need to include in our, in our prayer. Now, the first is to, to praise God for your blessings. Count your blessings, but before you fall asleep, thank God for the blessings you're counting. All good gifts come from above, from our Father in heaven. And so we need to acknowledge that if we're going to fight discontent and covetousness, we need to say, no, look at what God has given me. Look at what he has given me. The second thing we need to do in our prayer before we fall asleep counting these blessings is to ask for help with, with contentment and covetousness. It's not, oh, I can do it. I can get over this. I can try harder. It's Christ, I need you. I'm empty. I really want to be full. I'm full. I really want to be more full. We're full of different things. And what we need to cry out is, help me, give me a heart that is content with whatever state I am in. Give me a heart that is 
willing to fill a little space if that means you are glorified. And then the third thing we need to pray is to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. One of the great cures for me, me, me is turning away from me. I want all of these things, but we turn to something else. We say, there is darkness out there. I'm called to be salt and light. There is suffering out there. I am called to be an example of Christ-likeness in the community and towards other people. God, your kingdom come through the gospel, your will be done, and use me to bring your will and your kingdom before others. And that will drive me away from seeking self. Because God's kingdom and will are much bigger than me. Thankfully, they include me, but they're much bigger than that. So we praise God in prayer. We ask for help with our contentment. And then we turn our focus towards his work and his glory. Well, I, I hope this Ten Commandments series has then been beneficial as we continue to reflect on how far we fall short of the glory of God. May it drive us to Christ over and over who strengthens us. Let's pray.